0: Feminists, or should I say, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to this week's bonus episode all about um, residential boarding schools, the graves, the mass graves we've been fa- we've been finding, and everything you need to know about this, and how we can support the Indigenous Native community. So let's get started. So we're first going to go over like how they were established and all the basics and then go into more specific detail about like mass grave sites and the foundation of residential boarding schools for Indian Americans. So yeah. So in the 1900s and the 20th century, the U.S. established federal funded Indian boarding schools that aimed to strip Native American children of their culture. The most prominent, I would say, kind of boarding school was called the Carstyle Indian Industrial School. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is the history of American Indian schools, um, also referred to as Indian residential schools. So Native American boarding schools, as I said, also referred to as Indian residential schools were established in the U.S. during the early 19th and mid 20th century with the primary objective of civilizing or Um, I would say breaking away Native American children and youth into a Euro-American culture. So breaking their spirit of their tribe and their culture. You know, in the process, these schools degraded Native American culture and made children give up language and religion. At the same time, the schools provided basic education in Euro-American subjects. These boarding schools were first established by Christian missionaries of various denominations who often started both missions and schools of reservations, specifically in the lightly populated area of the West. In the late 19th, hundreds and the early 20th century the government paid religious orders to provide basic education to native american children on reservations and later established its own school of reservations the Bureau of indian affairs bia later founded additional boarding schools based on the stimulation model these sometimes drew children from a various of tribes in addition religious orders established off-reservation schools such as the private St. Jude's Indian School in Chamberlain, South Dakota, which continues to operate. Children who typically immersed in Euro-American culture, schools forced removal of indigenous culture signifiers, like for example, cutting the children's hair, having them wear American style uniforms, forbidding them from speaking their indigenous languages, and replacing their tribe names with American language names for use at the schools as part of assimilation and to Christianize them. The schools were usually harsh and sometimes deadly, uh, especially for younger children who had forcibly separated from their families and forced to abandon their Native American identities and culture. Investigations of the later 20th century have revealed many documented, documented cases of sexual, manual, physical, and mental abuse, reoccurring mostly in church-run schools. The National Museum of American Indian also notes that some students had great memories of their school days, had learned skills, and long-life friends. But in summarizing the recent scholarship from Native Perspective, Dr. Julie Davis argues, boarding schools embody both victimization and agencies for Native people, and they serve as sites of both cultural loss and cultural persistence. These institutions intended to stimulate Native people into mainstream society and eradicate Native cultures, becoming integral components of American Indian identities and eventually fueled the drive for political and cultural self-determination in the late 20th century. Since those years, tribe nations have carried out political activism and gained legislations and federal policies that have given them the power to to decide how to use federal education funds, how they educate their children, and the authority to establish their own community-based schools. Tribes have also found numerous tribunal colleges and universities on reservations. Tribal control over their schools have been supported by federal legislation and changing practices by the BIA. By 2017, most of the schools had been closed down and the number of Native American children and boarding schools have declined to ninety five hundred. The remaining of ones are primarily under Native American control. So I'm now gonna be talking about the first Native American boarding school. Native Americans have inhabited and tended their cultural lands for thousands of years before the arrival of white settlers in the 1600s, like Columbus. Rather than learning from the land's indigenous people, however, the settlers began to pressure Native Americans to abandon their traditional societies and adopt the ways of the new republic. And when I mean pressure, it's not like pressure like peer pressure. It was like forcefully killing people and taking their land to, you know, signify that they're better than them. In 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, a law that allowed the federal government to exchange land in the western U.S. for some tribes' and ancestral homelands in the east. But despite brokering more than 350 treaties with Native tribes, the U.S. did not fulfill its promises. Instead, of allowing Native people to establish permanent homes in the West, it pushed them onto government assigned reservations. So we're now gonna talk about the U.S. boarding schools for Native American children into more detail. Opened in 1975, the Carlisle Indian Industry School was the first boarding school to educate Native American children in an off reservation setting. Far from home, federally funded school philosophy was to kill the Indian, save the man, forcing their assimilation to white culture by forbidding the use of native languages and cultural practices. In 1991, the US passed a law making attendance compulsory for indigenous children. The Carl School became the blueprint for over 300 such schools across the US. And that is crazy. That is why we are finding mass grave sites where indigenous children are basically laid to rest. And it's horrible, it's disgusting. The culture, the history of our country in, is built off of taking land from indigenous people and making it our own and killing them even though they didn't do nothing wrong. We're the ones that are the settlers, the conquerors that took their land. and. This Hopefully, this episode will educate you on everything that our country basically did wrong. At first, education was in the hands of missionaries, some of whom set up schools on and near the new reservations. But as white settlers flooded into the western U.S. in the mid-19th century, forest assimilation became a federal priority. The government started to invest in mission schools and day schools, but over time, writes historian Ronald C. Nog, the reservation environment to which the children returned daily undermined the process of stimulation. Over its nearly 30 years of in operation, more than 12,000 Native American children attended the Carlisle Indians Industry School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania instill them with white settler cultural values instead the u.s turned to the idea of off-reservation boarding schools it founded a blueprint in the work of army general richard henry pratt who oversaw the education of a group of native american prisoners of war in fort pratt philosophy was what he called kill the indian save the man as i said before uh, he was convinced that if Native children were removed from their native contexts and placed in an Anglo one, they would uh, stimulate within a generation. Pratt convinced the federal government to invest in a pricey experiment: a boarding school in Pennsylvania that educated Native children far from home. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which Pratt opened in. 1879 would become the most prominent of the 25 federal funded off-reservation boarding schools that would open over the next few decades. Um, More than 300 other day and on-reservation boarding schools received federal funding as well. The Carousel Indian Industrial school was upheld as a model throughout the nation. It influence did not end there. In 1879, the Indian government sent lawyers, Nicholas Flood Davin, to the U.S. on a fact-finding mission. This is why um, we aren't celebrating Canadian Day because there was mass grave sites of Indian children's bodies found there, as well as in the U.S. You know, Davin visited the Carlisle School and other Institutes and returned to Canada with a glowing review of the new education system. They even recommended the government create its own residential school system as soon as possible. So for mass grave sites. And then now we're going to talk about the abuse in the name of stimulation. Board- as the federal boarding schools, which were located in white communities, children were often Anglo names. Their native languages and cultural practices were forbidden. Their strict education included language lessons and studying in subjects like manual labor, housekeeping, farming, and students were usually required to help keep the schools self-sufficient by laboring when they were not in the classroom. For many, the schools were hotbeds of humiliation, abuse, and victimization. They were also dangerous, unsanitary conditions, and overcrowding fueled diseases such as tuberculosis, influenza, and smallpox, especially among students weakened by trauma and manual labor. Schools had their own cemeteries and the students often built their classmates' coffins. Do you see how traumatizing that is? They, bu- they basically built coffins for children that they thought weren't deemed to live because they weren't going to give up their native culture. That is dehumanizing. That is disgusting that our government was involved in this. Continuing, other children died by suicide or ran away. The practice was so common that some schools offered bounties for runaways. The temptation to return to their wildlife savage influences surrounding them is no doubt very strong, wrote one newspaper reporter in a lengthy article about life at at White's Indiana Manual Labor Institute in Wabash, Indiana, the school Zikulasa attended. Yet, the U.S. government considered the school as a success, so much so that in 1891 it passed a federal law that made attendance compulsory for Native children. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, the federal agency attached with distributing Food, land, and other provisions, including its entreaties with Native tribes, withheld food and other goods from those who refused to send their children to the schools, and even sent officers to forcibly take children from the reservation. It was civilization by kidnapping, said one Native American advocate at a 1927 congressional hearing. Earlier generations of Native Americans had suffered the loss of nearly all of their lands. Now the boarding schools broke up family units and endangered their languages and cultural practices. But they persisted, of course. But many Native parents did not part from their children without a fight. One memorable act of protest occurred in. 1894 when a group of hope men in arizona refused to send their children to residential schools 19 of them were taken to alcatraz island in california about a thousand miles away from their family and imprisoned for a year so the next thing we're going to talk about is the fight to close the boarding schools at the beginning of the 20th century however enthusiasm for the system um you know kind of floundered you know in 1928 the u.s government commissioned what is now known as Merriam Report, a comprehensive update on the state of Native American affairs. Its author criticized everything from the school's deterring conditions to the often heavily manual labor the children were forced to perform, and pointed out that the schools relied on long outdated teaching like rote learning and recitation. Students were stiff, hungry, sick, and demoralized, they wrote, and were subject to harsh physical punishments. The report results in some immediate changes among them, the emergency allocations of funding for better food and clothing in the schools. But even though the reports recommended dismantling the boarding school system in favor of day schools, the school persisted. Meanwhile, the fractures they had introduced into native culture were widened. Native languages began to die out, fueled by children's absence from the reservation and their forced to use English as their primal language. Traditional parenting skills were not passed on to younger generations, and over the years, children at the school reported widespread neglect and physical and sexual abuse. The most deliberating message was one of self-hatred, wrote Mandling the Sacred Hoop a Native American nonprofit that works to end violence against Native women. In a two thousand and three report on the boarding school experiment, the nonprofit traced violence in Native American communities which experienced an order of magnitude more violence than their majority white counterparts to the abuse and trauma many children suffered during their educations. Native Americans continued to fight to close the schools. Self determined education was a prior from the bargaining pan-Indian movement in the 1960s and 1970s. 1975, Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination Education Assistance Act, which granted tribes the ability to assume responsibility for programs that had been um, administrated by the federal government. The radical history of the Red Power Movement fight for Native American sovereignty. Um, it was the hell neil for most residential schools, but a few remain. Today, the U.S. Bureau of Indian Education still directly operates four off-reservation boarding schools in Oklahoma, California, Oregon, and South Dakota. According to the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, a Native-run nonprofit, 15 boarding schools, and 73 total schools with federal funding remain open as of 2021. Just crazy. Um, continuing, uh, Reckon, Reckon with the Past. Um, um, so the next thing is we're gonna be talking about is reckoning with the past. So in the late twentieth century, the federal government began to acknowledge the schools legacy. In 2009, Congress passed a joint resolution of apology to Native Americans that included reference to the forcible removal of Native children from their families to faraway boarding schools where their Native practices and languages were degraded and forbidden. In 2016, the U.S. Army began to repatriating remains of some of the bodies buried at the carcel Indian school to their tribes and bands. It is the only known effort to do so in the United States. But, you know, now we're doing some efforts as of 2021, as it's coming back up in the news. The number of children who were sent off to off-reservation residential boarding schools over their century long history is unclear, but the scars remain. Intergenerational wounds were reopened with recent reports of unmarked graves in Canada. In response, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary, announced the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, a program designed to review the school's history and legacy. The program will investigate known and suspected burial sites. The Native American Boarding School Coalition applaud the initiative. We have a right to know what happened to the children who never returned from Indian boarding schools, the NABS said in a release. The time is now for truth and healing. And, yeah, it's extremely sad to have to talk about children who never returned home to their families after being ripped from their parents' arms. And it's just very heartbreaking. We're now gonna talk in detail about mass grave sites found in several Canadian schools. So an indigenous nation in Canada says it has founded 751 unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school in Saskatchewan. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that right. Um, the discovery was the most significantly substantial to the date in Canada. It was a shameful reminder of the systemic racism, discrimination, and injustice that Indigenous people have faced. These Canadian residential schools were boarding schools that were made to stimulate Indigenous youth in white society and teach First Nation children to reject their own spirituality and culture. Residential schools were a place where decades of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse were commonly found. Students were told not to speak their language nor practice their culture. They would would disappear on a regular basis and never be seen again. These schools were funded by the Canadian government and run by religious authorities during the 19th and 20th century. And like I said, the Canadian government did send somebody to scope out what America was doing and they came back to Canada saying, this is a great idea and we should start on doing this. Basically saying they wanted to dehumanize Native Americans because they didn't like their culture. Canadian's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, was the architect on this horrid system, school system, and was intent to break the Indians and fully stimulate them into white society. The Kamloops Indian Residential School was part of the Canadian Indian Residential School System, located in Kamloops, British Columbia. It was once the largest residential school in Canada, with its enrollment peak at 500 in the 1950s. The school was established in 1890 and is operational until 1969. And that's not even that long ago, to be honest. To be honest, that's basically 50 years ago, and that's crazy when it was taken over by the federal government from the Catholic Church to be used as a day school and residence. It closed in 1978. It didn't even, wait, so to be honest, it didn't even closed in... It was just operational until 1969, but closed basically 10 years later. That's crazy, it's crazy. Why did it take them 10 years to close it? The school building still stands today, which is disgusting. So this Kamloop Indian Residential School was built in 1890 and then was rebuilt in 1923 due to the fire and remained open until 1977. In the 1920s, these children ages four to 15 years were forcefully taken and prohibited from seeing their families, practicing their language, cultures, and traditions. Uh, children attending KIRS experienced extreme isolation and segregation. In May and June 2021, the remains of hundreds of Indigenous people were discovered near the former sites of three Canadian Indian residential schools in the province of Manitoba, British Columbia, and Saskatchewan. As they were forcibly taken away from their parents wasn't good enough, they had to be faced endless pain and from the abuse and the horrendous living conditions. Students were put in a poorly built, poorly heated and unsanitary facilities. These living conditions would, seen, would soon be the reason to the death of these poor children. Residential schools were hotbeds for tuberculosis and many of the students died from tuberculosis. They also lacked basic medical care to treat the ill students back to health. Other than disease, students would also be killed due to accidents that happened inside the school. Fire trap condition, construction, and non-existent safety standards frequently caused death upon the students. Many children tried to run away from the hellhole, but they ended up freezing or drowning to death in the process, and even after being gone for a long period of time, the school never seemed to care enough to deploy a search for the missing children. Most of the children were often frozen to death when they were found. So the last thing, we're going to have two more things we're going to talk about in this episode before we wrap it up. So Indigenous people of Canada, and we're going to talk more in depth in this. So we're going to talk about who are the Indigenous people of Canada, effects of colonization, the effects of colonism, and what can you do to support the Indigenous community. So indigenous people are referred to as natives, first of all, the people of a colonized place. Natives are the inheritors and practitioners of unique culture and ways of relating to people and the environment. They have retained social, cultural, economic, and political characteristics that are distant from those of the dominant societies in which they live. In Canada, indigenous people have been existing since time. um, immoral. Like, they were the original inhabitants of the land that is now known as Canada. The Canadian census of 2016 by statistics, Canada states that more than 1.6 million people in Canada are indigenous. This is 4.9% of the national population. Through several threatened and uncertain cases by colonial forces, Indigenous culture, language, and society systems have shaped the development of Canada and continue to thrive despite extreme adversity. And that goes for the same in America as well. Um, Canada is home to three categories of Indigenous people. Inuit, they inhabited the north region of Canada. Metis, they occupied the Priory Um, Preference and Arturo, and First Nations. They were the original inhabitants of the land of Canada, often occupied territories south of the Arctic. Indigenous people have suffered a long history of prejudice and discrimination, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode. Upon excavation in the ruins of residential schools for Indigenous groups in Canada, 700 children's bodies were found. Chief Bobby Cameron of the Federal of... Indigenous First Nations said that he expects more graves will be found on residential schools across Canada and in the US. This was a crime against humanity, an assault of First Nations, he said. We will not stop until we find all the bodies. So lastly, what can we do to help Indigenous people? So first, apply laws to protect the land rights of the Indigenous people, educate people about the history of the Indigenous people, Hold Canada accountable for their past crimes against Indigenous communities. Their history and suffering should not be forgotten. Don't speak over their voices. Listen patiently when they speak and also support Indigenous artists, businesses, owners, journalists, and community organizers. In these harsh times due to the pandemic and an internal crisis of the genocide of hundreds of Indigenous people in Canada and in the US, we need to educate ourselves and others around us, hear them out, support their initiatives, and donate when possible. And now, because I want to share light on some Indigenous people, um, we are going to Talk about some books to read by Indigenous authors, and this I found from the Indigenous Fam Foundation that can really help us educate ourselves on Indigenous and residential schools and its lasting impacts. First, the Orange Shirt Story by Phyllis Webstad, illustrated by Brock Nicol. Orange Shirt Story on September 30th is an annual opportunity for people of all ages to stand in solidarity with residential school survivors and their families by wearing orange. The event is inspired by residential school survivor Phyllis Webstan experience on being stripped of a brand new orange shirt on her first day attending residential school when she was just six years old. Webstan Books' The Orange Shirt Story shares what it meant for the writer to deprive of her beloved clothing and her sense of identity at such a young age. The next book is Indian Horse by Richard Wagamese. Indian Horse by Richard Wagamese tells the story of Indian. Indian horse, um, a young Ojibwe boy who is ripped from his family and forcibly placed in a residential school. Sol, a gifted hockey player, is both victim and witness to the dehumanizing abuse of students at the school. As an adult, Sol becomes dependent on alcohol and cope with the trauma of his childhood. The next one is My Name is Sipizza. Written in the form of a diary, My Name is Pizza recounts the story of a young girl taken from home to attend. Kamloops Indian Residential School in the 1950s. My name is pizza. has been described as an honest inside look at the residential school experience. One that highlights the resilience of a child in a place governed by strict nuns and strict rules. So yeah, I will link a Google doc in the description so you can read these books and educate yourself on residential schools and its lasting impacts to this day from mass grave sites to what it was really like for an indigenous child in that environment. So yeah, the last thing we're gonna be talking about, I guess, if you wanna say it like that, um, is answering some like, common questions about residential boarding schools. So first, does American boarding school still exist? It was a death knell for most residential boarding schools, but a few still remain today. Today, the U- United States for Ob- Indian Education still directly operates 4 off-reservation boarding schools in Oklahoma, California, Oregon, and South Dakota. So, basically, as of when I'm recording this episode, August 14th, there still remains boarding schools that are based off of the idealism that you can dehumanize children just because they're native. Um, Next question is, why are boarding schools bad for native Americans? So I kind of got, I kind of went all over the place in this episode about that but to narrow it down, in the 1920s, a report concluded that children of federal boarding schools were dehumanized, overworked, harshly punished, and poorly educated. And as of 19 and in 1969, a report declared Indian education to be a national tragedy. Um, What were the effects of Native American boarding schools? Under the pretense of helping devastated Indian nation, boarding schools created places of stimulation, forcing children to attend, and sometimes resorting to what would be called kidnapping, um, as most of these children died from homesickness, working um, conditions, and working accidents, uncontrolled disease, and unplanned escape attempts, and even suicide because of how much they had to endure as being four to 15 years old and that was only the age where it was forced to go to these um, residential boarding schools in canada and the u.s um next question where the a, what was the aim of carlisle a boarding school for indians carlisle indian industrial school opened in 1879 and operated for nearly 30 years with a mission to kill the man to, to kill the Indian, to save the man. Sorry, with, with a mission to kill the Indian, to save the man. The philosophy which administrators force students to speak English, wear Anglo-American clothing and act according to US values and culture. The next question is What happened at Indian boarding schools? So, there are more than 350 government run and off church run Indian boarding schools across the US in the 1900s and 20th century. Indian boarding schools were forcibly ad- abducted by government agents, sent to schools hundreds of miles away, and beaten, and starved, and otherwise abused them when they spoke their native language or did anything remotely close to their language and their culture. Um, the next question is, when was the last residential boarding school closed? And that was in 1984. And if you want to do the math, that's basically less than 50 years ago. That's basically all of our questions we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you take away something that's really important about what the U.S. and Canada has done to Indians in the last 200 years. So if you like this episode, make sure to give it a review down below. Um, check out all of our links in the description. Check out some of those books by indigenous people who really um, give you an in-depth about what it was like to be a residential boarding school and its lasting impacts to this day in 2021 august um also make sure to check out all of our socials instagram at teen feminist podcast um twitter at teen feminist pod um youtube at teen feminist podcast and tiktok of course at teen feminist so yeah your host teen feminist out